Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Ian Baruma has written recently for Project Syndicate about what he calls the colonial trap that occurs after a foreign occupier makes local elites dependent on its power and money and then chooses to leave. He points out that it becomes almost impossible to leave without causing chaos. And the longer the foreign power stays, the worse the problem tends to become. It's obviously what's been happening as a result of the pullout of American troops from Afghanistan, but has a number of parallels over the past seven decades. It's my great pleasure to welcome Ian Baruma, the Paul W. Williams Professor of Human Rights and Journalism at Bard College, back to our show. Welcome back. Hi. It's good to be back. You begin your essay on February 20th, 1947, when Clement Attlee, the Labour Party British Prime Minister, informed Parliament that India would become independent no later than June 1948. What led him to make that decision? Well, he was the Labour Prime Minister, so he was a socialist and um, anti-imperialist, and he, long before that, felt that it was time uh, to divest Britain of its colonial uh, empire. Um, he'd hoped that it would lead to a commonwealth, and um, which was sort of uh, an, an empire, or at least a commonwealth of, of democratic countries. Um, but um, he wanted to get out of India and other places. He was not an imperialist, unlike Churchill, who thought it would be a disaster. Well, you were a guest on this show this past January to talk about your book, The Churchill Complex, in which you discussed the impact of British decolonization in Asia and Africa in the decades following World War II. So it mattered whether the British pr prime minister was from labor or conservative parties? Uh, up to a point, yes, but less than most people assume. Um, the, the labor party, although they were proud socialists, were, were often still nationalists, um, British patriots. And had some of them had as grand a view of uh, Britain as a great power in the world as, as Churchill did. So one can exaggerate the differences, but there was certainly no sentimental attachment to the empire on uh, Attlee's part, uh, unlike Churchill, who, who was totally invested in it. You write, quote, U.S. President Joe Biden knew what British Prime Minister Clement Attlee knew in 1947. Once you make Local elites dependent on the power and money of a foreign occupier, it becomes almost impossible to leave without causing mayhem. And the longer the foreign power stays, the worse the mayhem often becomes. So the, the, uh, I'm assuming you, you see many parallels between what happened then and the U.S. decision to leave Afghanistan. Well, in terms of the, of the, of the, the mayhem and the mess, yes, uh, of course, the situation is not quite the same in the sense that um, Britain was handing India over to a government of experienced and by and large moderate hmm. politicians, even though there were huge rifts between the Hindus and the, and the, and the Muslims, which led to the to partition, to the split between uh, of India and Pakistan. But both the, both the Indian and the Pakistani leaders were fairly responsible, which uh, yes. has not been the case in Afghanistan. That's right. Mohammad Jinnah, who was the first prime minister of Pakistan, um, was uh, a barrister from, uh, I believe, uh, Bombay, or Mumbai, as you call it now, and um, a highly educated, highly sophisticated man, who, who although a Muslim, um, was worlds away from the, the, the Taliban. Well, uh, your father was Dutch, your mother was British, 
you live in the United States, and these are all countries with varying histories as colonial powers. Is that what got you thinking about all of this? No, not really, because my own family on both sides, I mean, they, they re with one exception, were not really involved in, 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 in colonies at all. I didn't have relatives who lived in Indonesia or uh, anything like that. My father, my grandfather on my mother's side, uh, did serve as an army doctor in India um, during the war for a year or two. Um, but uh, I have no uh, colonial ties, uh, hatred or nostalgia. So I'm, I'm relatively uh, detached from, from the history. I mean, not uninterested, but detached. The Netherlands also had a vast colonial empire. How much of it did it give up in the years following World War II? Well, it wasn't so much vast as it was very rich in, in, in resources and so on. Indonesia, what is now Indonesia, was then the Dutch East Indies. And the Dutch dealt with it, with it in the worst possible way, which is that it was occupied by the Japanese. Uh, the Dutch were put into concentration camps, which showed the Indonesians the, that the Dutch were not all powerful, as, which is a condition, really, for continuing an empire. You have to, with relatively few troops... You have to convince the colonial uh, people that the colonial rule is, is the only possible option. Well, the Japanese made, put an end to that. Uh, so as soon as the war was over, the Indonesian nationalists under um, Sukarno um, wanted, to, wanted independence. And the Dutch were terrified that without Indonesia, the Dutch economy would collapse and so on. And these were fears that were later shown to be false. But uh, they decided to hang on and to come, or to come up with all kinds of solutions which were clearly not practical. And so it led to a prolonged war of independence uh, with uh, enormous uh, uh, bloodshed. And That's it's something that the Dutch are still, they're beginning to talk about it and write about it and, and, and so on, but it's still a, a sore point. And the French also uh, gave up colonies, in, mostly in Africa and Belgium. And the United States, we gave up the Philippines in 1947. Yes, but the United States had wanted to give up the Philippines already before the war. I mean, that's another peculiar history. And the, the people who, who were against it, who wanted to continue the, their status as a colony, were the sort of big planta sugar plantation owners who are Filipinos, uh, who had very, um, a very good deal with the Americans, were getting very rich. And so they were rather reluctant. But the Americans were not unhappy to lose the Philippines. The French were extremely unhappy to lose uh, Indochina, of course, but Algeria, which was actually not officially a colony, but a part, a part of France. And one of the, the horrible ironies of this immediate post-war period is that the French and the Dutch sent troops to uh, Algeria in the case of the French and the Dutch East Indies in the case of the Dutch to crush the independence movement with great brutality and some of the people who went with these troops had been in the resistance against the Nazi occupation during the war. So they had um, split uh, feelings about the whole thing, I assume. I don't know about their feelings, but during the war, they, they were active resistors mm -hmm. in France and in Holland against the Nazis, uh, at great risk to their lives. And then as soon as the war was over, they were sent by their governments mm -hmm. 
as soldiers to crush the independence in Poland, colonies. And of course, the, the, the propaganda uh, in, 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 in Indonesia and the Dutch East Indies was that they were fighting the fascists just as they'd fought the, the Nazis during the war. So Sukarno was depicted as a fascist leader who, because he collaborated with the Japanese during the war, which is true. Most uh, nationalist activists in, in Southeast Asia had cooperated with the Japanese because they saw it as a way to get rid of the European imperialists. It doesn't mean that they liked the Japanese necessarily, but they did cooperate. And that gave uh, the Dutch government after the war the excuse to mm -hmm. depict these nationalist leaders as, as fascists. I guess nobody handled these things as well as they could have. How would you categorize uh, Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands? Are they colonies of sorts? I know too little about it to talk about it on, on the radio without bluffing. Mm -hmm. So I, I think you have to ask me questions about something I know better, more, more about. I've never really uh, paid very close attention to the history of the Virgin Islands and, uh, and Puerto Rico. Uh, didn't Attlee know that the British withdrawal from India would be followed by violent unrest and perhaps a, a civil war? Um, because Muslim leaders were afraid of Hindu dominance? Yes, that must have been known, uh, although one must not, never underestimate the ignorance of, of sort of government civil servants who are sent out to these places to start drawing border lines on the back of envelopes and that kind of thing, which is more or less what happened in India in the 1940s. But that it would be messy, I'm sure they must have known. How messy or how bloody, uh, they may not have known. Um, these are unforeseen consequences, but the, that there would be consequences, I'm sure they must have known, because the, uh, partly because of the, the British Raj that um, had used divide and rule uh, before. They divided the Muslims from the Hindus in Bengal, for example, under, under Curzon. Uh, so they knew that there was bad blood, um, but ha quite how bloody it would be, they didn't know. And what happened is that they sent, the, gov the Atlee government sent people over to India to see how p partition could be worked. And as I said, it was done, I can't remember his name, but it was done by a civil servant who'd never been to India before, who rather arbitrarily drew a border through the Punjab, dividing, um, leaving huge Muslim and Hindu minorities on both sides of the border. And that would lead to uh, great uh, savagery. And a half a million lives were lost to the violence between the Hindus and the Muslims. Many more people lost their homes. Yes, I think I probably underestimated that figure in the column you mentioned. It, I think it was many more. But uh, uh, it was, in any case, millions and millions either died or, or, or um, were homeless. Like Biden, Attlee was blamed for getting out too soon. Could Britain have done more to prepare its former colony for a more stable situation? They probably could have done things a little bit differently. They could have been more careful about dividing India, the border between India and Pakistan. Um, perhaps they could have prepared a better police force to quell some of the violence. But th this is all talking about it in hindsight. Well, um, the same thing happened in Afghanistan. Uh, yes. The police and force I, and the army turned out to be a lot less prepared when we withdrew than uh, people would have expected. 
That we is, we that did is leave true. them a lot of arms, but they, that all, all wound up in the, the hands of the Taliban. That's absolutely true. But I think um, a lot of that's easy to say in hindsight. I think it's, it's, it's not always easy to, to, to see what consequences are going to be of any given decision. There, my argument is that it would not necessarily have made things better in, in either case if they'd stayed much longer. Um, if anything, worse, because the, the dependency on uh, the foreign occupying power uh, simply grows in time and, and people become less and less prepared and the violence could be worse. So th there is never a good moment to leave once you um, occupy these countries or dominate them in the way that the U.S. dominated Afghanistan. Well, Craig, um, go ahead. Yeah, so th there is no there is no good time to leave, and so I think that is why Attlee and, and I would defend both Attlee and, and Biden for simply saying enough's enough. Well, uh, critics of President Biden's decision to withdraw claim that the U.S. should have stayed longer. Hasn't the neoconservative scholar Robert Kagan argued that the U.S. should have promised to stay at least twenty years? Well, he or argued even more. That well, he argued that from the very beginning, um, the American presence there was too wishy-washy, that they, they never committed themselves to anything, but sort of stayed and, you know, one year became two years and two years became three years, etc. He says they should have then committed themselves to 20 years. But that seems to me a bit arbitrary, because if you commit yourself to staying somewhere for 20 years, why not 40 years? Why not 80 years? And so... Uh, I think it's, it's, it's based on this illusion that somehow the, the tutorship of the foreign power can prepare governments to start governing themselves uh, in an orderly fashion as long as you stay there long enough. And I don't believe that that's the case. Interestingly, Kagan is married to Victoria Nuland, who served as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs in the Biden administration since this past April. Uh, that has to be a divided family. Well, not necessarily because she's a liberal hawk and he's not a Trumpian Republican. Uh, they're both great believers in uh, the United States being a force for the good and, if necessary, using uh, or promoting the good and, and world order with force. And I don't think that they disagree about that. They may sometimes have voted for different parties, but even that's not... I mean, I think, as far as I know... Um, Kagan voted uh, for Hillary Clinton and not for for, for Trump, and, and, and logically, because Hillary Clinton, too, is a liberal hawk. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Ian Baruma. Um, isn't the real question whether Attlee or Biden could have ever left India or Pakistan in stable condition? That is the real question, and I, I don't know if I mentioned it in that piece, but there's a fascinating interview with William F. Buckley and Harold Macmillan um, in, the, in the 1960s on television. And William Buckley, this is when uh, the last British colonies in Africa start, became independent. In 1960. In, in 1960, and Macmillan was then uh, prime minister. And uh, Buckley asks Macmillan, who was a conservative, um, whether uh, the Africans were ready to rule themselves. And Macmillan says, absolutely not. And then Buckley said, well, why leave then? And, he, and Macmillan said, because if you don't need leave, they will never be ready. The only way that they can be ready is to do it. 
and putting the most talented uh, uh, people in jail um, uh, just makes things worse. So uh, it's their, these are their countries. They have to learn how to rule them. And being there as a colonial power will just hold things up. Well, once the British left some of those African colonies, civil wars or the equivalent broke out. Yes. So is there that's any not- way to prepare that? To prepare no. for that? In in my opinion, that's very difficult because it's it's the, the the colonial situation in some ways with arbitrary borders in Africa too. You had, these countries are, are very largely arbitrary with different tribes living in different on different sides of borders and that kind of thing, and so you, you the, the the chaos is in itself a result of colonial rule and um, prolonging colonial rule. Uh, does not make the chance of chaos any less. I would argue uh, more. Didn't most of the uh, European empires start as trading posts with no intention to create an empire? I think many of them did, yes. Um, So you had, first it started with trade, and then you start to use local uh, rulers, salt, sultans and, and rajas and so on, you start playing one off against the other. You, you, you need to protect your trading interests and um, it ends up with direct, in many places, in direct rule or sometimes indirect rule through, through local rulers. The British were very adept at doing that by using sultans in Malaya and Maharajas and so on in India to rule indirectly. I mean, they still had to do what the British wanted, but uh, they were formally in charge and had their pageantry and so on. And then the British were um, pulling the the strings behind the scenes. The British trading companies? Uh, Well, in the end, the British government. I mean, first, uh, the British trading companies did that. But in the end, in India, of course, the British government was uh, finally responsible. Religion has always played a major role in all of this. Didn't Christian missionaries often justify imperial rule going back to the the 19th century, Christianize these people? Absolutely. And and by the end of the 19th century, um, it became somewhat difficult to justify colonial rule. Um, There was was more and more criticism. Local people were getting restless and wanted to... uh, calling out for independence and so on. So you had to defend and justify uh, what is not a normal situation of a foreign power with with very few people running these vast countries. And one way to justify it to one's own people as much as to the the, the people who are ruled in these colonies uh, by saying that you're civilizing them, as the French would say, or you're making them ready for democracy or or you're christianizing them which is of course part of the same thing as as, as civilizing in the in in the eyes of christians and it was and an argument used by the slavers as well people who defended slavery i am sure it was and it's also the the, the, the poem that's by kipling hmm. the white man's burden that's always often being quoted um when people talk about colonial history people think that uh, many people think that uh, Kipling meant the British um, carrying the white man's burden in India and and Southeast Asia and Africa. In fact, it was a letter. He sent the poem to, I believe, it was either Teddy Roosevelt or McKinley. 
but it was about the Philippines and it was about the Americans taking the white man's burden seriously um, in the Philippines, which had just become an American colony. Was uh, the uh, granting of uh, Philippine independence easier because of World War II and the fact that the Japanese had occupied it uh, from, for part of the war? Well, I think in, in a way, yes, because one thing that the Japanese uh, invasions in, in Asian countries did is they dented that image of Western empires being invincible. And as I said earlier, the, you, the British ruled India with, with only rarely a handful of British troops. They couldn't have kept India by terror alone or... or, or with guns. They didn't have enough guns. So what you have to do is create an image in the minds of those who are being ruled that this is the normal state of affairs, that there's nothing they can do about it, that this is the natural order, and that these empires are invincible. The, the ease with which the Japanese defeated uh, the European powers in 1941 um, in Southeast Asia showed Asians that they were far from in invincible. And so it, it, it sort of... Uh, gave nationalists um, far more reason for, to hope, uh, even though uh, they suffered grievously under the Japanese as well. But the defeat of the Japanese was, in a sense, a, a, a liberation. So uh, it was probably a lot easier to make that transition than it would have been if the, uh, the United States had uh, maintained control of the Philippines throughout the war. That's absolutely true, but of course many of them saw the Japanese uh, victory over Western powers as a form of liberation too, the first stage of liberation. And that was victory. an idea that the Japanese encouraged. Mm -hmm. So in the Dutch East Indies, for example, the Japanese made a lot of propaganda about um, Asia for the Asians and the Indonesian language was promoted and uh, young boys were drafted in sort of Indonesian nationalist militias who, of course, all uh, were under, the, under the, the thumb of the Japanese. But it, it, it certainly helped the independence movement after the war was over. Since United States independence came as a result of breaking away from the British Empire, aren't Americans supposed to be anti-imperialist? Yes, and which is why this was one of the sticking points between Roosevelt and um, FDR, that is, and Churchill during the war, because uh, Ro when they made up their famous Atlantic Charter in 1941, um, uh, Roosevelt was very keen uh, to have a clause that uh, promised that all peoples should be free to choose their own government. And I think he was serious about it, and he was no fan of the British Empire at all. Uh, whereas Churchill, uh, the last thing he wanted was for Indians and others to have the, uh, the freedom to choose their own government. And so this was a, a, a real source of tension um, throughout the war. And, and Roosevelt kept needling Churchill about giving India independence and so on. So after the war, when the, the United States started expanding its power in, in, in countries that had had belonged to European empires before, like Vietnam, um, they, of course, never uh, made their case by uh, claiming um, imperial power. They made by ca their case by saying they were fighting communism and, and, and bringing democracy and freedom and so on and so forth. 
So it was a kind of anti-imperialist form of imperialism. Fighting communism in Korea and Vietnam, but also dictatorships in Iran and Afghanistan. Yes, Iran in particular was a very dark page in Anglo-American history because they had an elected government under Mossadegh Mm. Um, who then decided he wanted to nationalize oil, which had belonged to British Petroleum. Um, and uh, the CIA, to, with the British uh, intelligence service, um, brought him down. And that's caused such um, resentment in Iran that it, it that lasts to this day. Was a, a stated goal, whether it was true or not, uh, to spread the concepts of free market capitalism and democratic governments to these places? Well, it was sometimes the stated goal. Um, uh, it was not not necessarily a condition of support, but um, it also depends on what you mean by free market economics. I think it was certainly the, the, the goal in places in South America and so on, where uh, free market e economics meant the monopoly of American corporations. Mm. Um, so, uh, yes, it was sort of part and parcel of that idea that, you know, we want the world to um, be like us. Um, but uh, the stated goals were often far from what actually happened. Well, it's such a complex history. The Panama Canal, for example, yeah. uh, U.S. involvement in uh, in any number of Latin American countries, both in uh, in North America and South America. You're absolutely right. And you were asking about my own family background and, and how relevant it might be. I mean, I, I, I was born in, at the end of 1951 in a country that had been liberated from the Nazis, mostly by the Canadians, but by the Americans and the British. And uh, where my part of Europe, Western Europe, of course, benefited from Pax Americana, from the American domination, from the Americans taking care of our security well. Uh, Europeans were able to rebuild their economies and so on. But um, if I'd been uh, born in uh, Guatemala or Argentina, I probably would have had a very different view. We still have troops uh, stationed all over the world. Uh, is that an aspect of what we're discussing here? Yes, it is, because that's very much part of Pax Americana. Um, and the, the deal made after the war and um, most people went along with this deal, in, certainly in Western Europe and in Japan and in South Korea. The deal was, okay, you get on with rebuilding your economies. You can build prosperity and so on in peace. And we, the Americans, will take care of your security. And this created a certain dependence, uh, or more than a certain dependence, of Europeans and East Asians on the United States but it was a very comfortable dependence, and we didn't have to we didn't have to worry about so much about spending our tax money on uh, on building vast armed forces. The Americans could do it for us, uh, and the the presence of American troops in these various countries um, are testimony to that. And so, they may not have been particularly popular amongst people who li lived around military bases and so on, but. By and large, this deal was acceptable until not so long ago when people began to realize that total dependence on America is perhaps not such a good idea. We've been talking about parallels between British uh, experiences and U.S. experiences. Does that also apply to 
the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal? Um, well, that I, I think was the result of uh, well of, of many different things, um, uh, national interests, uh, of course, first and foremost. But the other result of of the war, which is more the subject of, of the book I wrote about the Churchill factor uh, complex, is that um, ever since Chamberlain um, made his deal with Hitler in 1938, the so-called appeasement. Mm-hmm. Um, People, especially U.S. presidents, have been, and, and some British prime ministers, have been terrified of going down history as uh, the Chamberlain of their day. And this is a myth that Churchill himself uh, promoted very assiduously. He was the one who saw, who had the correct view. He saved the, the free world. Chamberlain was a coward, uh, and so on. And that's and why so- Tony Blair and Boris Johnson uh, claimed to be the new Churchills. Exactly. But but uh, Lyndon Johnson compared uh, uh, Diem, the Vietnamese, South Vietnamese leader, to Churchill. Um, uh, Eden, uh, Anthony Eden, who was prime minister in, in, in Britain uh, at the time of the Suez crisis, saw Nasser, the, the Egyptian leader, as a sort of Mussolini, at least as a fascist. And, and he in his speeches, he said, if we don't do something about this, we know where that leads from our own experience. And he meant 1938. And so there was a lot of... um, uh, It's an example of how the wrong lessons of history can be learned. And that was one of the things that led the British and the French and the Israelis into the uh, uh, Suez crisis. And the Americans were very much against it. Hmm. Uh, Eisenhower thought this was complete folly, uh, he saw it as a last spasm of a sort of increasingly impotent, the, the last sort of embers of uh, the British Empire. And he pretty much blackmailed the British into getting the hell out of Egypt. And he said, if you don't, um, we'll um, um, make sure that the pound plunges. And um, that was really the moment that the British realized that their role as a great global power had played out and that the Americans were really the only show in town apart from the Soviet Union. And now they're feeling uh, a little, some misgivings because the United States is looking weaker. But um, we'll get back to that after we take a little break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're talking about the colonial trap with Ian Baruma, the Paul W. Williams Professor of Human Rights and Journalism at Bard College. His previous books include Murder in Amsterdam, The Death of Theo van Gogh, and The Limits of Tolerance, Year Zero, A History of 1945, A Tokyo Romance, A Memoir, and most recently, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. Uh, So let's talk about that whole colonial trap that uh, you have uh, named this article from. Um, How... um, 
you, you point out that although local elites like the Afghans who governed Kabul and other cities might do well, that dependency not just on another state but on NGOs and other well-meaning institutions that do what government should be doing fuels corruption. In in what ways and uh, is that part of the problem that we are seeing we are seeing again in all the stories that we're talking about? Well, yes, and I think especially in Afghanistan, but not only in Afghanistan, when you get uh, a local elite that works with the uh, outside power, and when there are vast amounts of money flowing into these places to develop them and so on and so forth, and that can come from NGOs as well, as you said, um, you, the elite begins to depend on that money flow. They, they can become, if they are, are particularly corrupt, they can become vastly rich. Um, and uh, it has a corrupting influence. You're just throwing money at, at, at problems at, at countries as though that's going to solve the problems. It doesn't solve the problems usually because things that governments ought to be doing, like building roads and hospitals and schools and so on, often don't get done uh, or not enough because too much money d disappears into different pockets and uh, or NGOs take care of stuff that... Uh, local governments ought to be taken care of. So you, you create as many problems as you're trying to solve. And um, I th I, again, this is not a uniquely Afghan problem. Uh, this is, uh, you see this in, in, in many of these places. But uh, there's been a lot of talk about how translators and some others who were sympathetic to the U.S. occupiers are trapped. I'm assuming that the ones who did well economically, the ones who got rich, have already gotten out. Yes, the very rich normally get get out, but of course a lot of those translators and so on are not particularly rich. I mean, they're part of uh, an educated urban elite, and um, they're people who are much closer to us than uh, than the Taliban would be. But they they do get trapped in these situations. I mean, there's no way Biden could have um, lifted, uh, you know, a million people out of Afghanistan. There's, there's it's just practically impossible. So they probably did as well as they as they could under the circumstances. But yes, they are the victims, uh, the people who, who are often not at all corrupt, but um, well-meaning, uh, who did their best to improve life in their countries with foreign help. Uh, and they're, they're, they're trapped. Didn't the, the presence of foreign military force and political tutors who may have little understanding of how things work in the countries they occupy, doesn't that make it more difficult for the local people to even rule themselves? Yes, I think it does. It's, it's, it's often pointed out that um, a difference between, let's say, the British Empire and the American presence in many of these places after the war is that since it was an empire, you had a lot of specialists who were sent out there, um, British colonial civil servants, who knew the local languages, who'd studied local cultures and, and conditions and politics, and were, were extremely well-versed in, in these countries, and, and therefore often effective. Whereas uh, the Americans, who, because they don't want to create an a formal empire, um, in fact are against it, uh, don't have that kind of apparatus. I mean, of course you have experts, but not on the same scale that real imperialists often did. So you do often find um, relative ignoramuses who are sent out to these places who really have no <laughs> idea 
and make things much worse. And I was told by uh, an American officer of the U.S. Army who served in, in, in both in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he served in, in rural Afghanistan. And he told me that the real problem was that the Taliban had spent all these years networking, making alliances, getting involved in local politics, and so on, whereas the Afghan government and the Americans stayed uh, out of all that. And so they could rule Kabul and they could rule a few other big cities, but things began to crumble very fast as soon as they didn't have the force to um, hold the Taliban in, in military abeyance anymore because they just didn't have the, the local networks and the local expertise to deal with the crisis. And this, this officer, by the way, was very much in favor of Biden getting out. Uh, although Biden has been accused of being a, na a naive old man, you say that he can't be blamed for the rise of the Taliban or the fragile state of the country that's seen so many wars and invasions. And didn't the Taliban, in a way, have more credibility with many of the locals? Uh, the, the colonial elites uh, had little legitimacy in the eyes of their compatriots. Well, I think that is probably true, that, that uh, on a local level, partly because the, the Taliban did um, put a lot of effort into um, local politics um, and was perhaps in some ways culturally and religiously and so on more in tune with a lot of rural people than the urban elites were, uh, they were more effective. But, of course, you saw that the same thing was true in, in South Vietnam, where you had the uh, elites in, um, in in Saigon, often Christians, um, who were not rarely in touch with people in rural areas who were closer to the Viet Cong in many ways. But is Afghanistan a special case because it had so many foreign invaders over the years uh, from across Asia and then the Russians for a long time? Uh, and European countries have had taken little pieces. Uh, so uh, does that give the Taliban more respectability in the eyes of, of the locals because they're purists in a way? I, I don't know enough about Afghanistan to answer that question with any conviction, but I, I would assume that it, to the extent that they have respect, it's perhaps not so much because of their religious dogma um, as uh, for the fact that they, they are seen as sort of um, nationalists freedom fighters. And I suppose the same is true for the sympathy that many Vietnamese had for the Viet Cong, or South Vietnamese had for the Viet Cong, it was not so much because they shared their communist beliefs, but they were fighting the foreign invader. Mm -hmm. And um, so in that sense, uh, I think probably the Taliban did have support, but it would be risky to say that that's because their um, purist views on, on religion are widely shared. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, uh, my guest is Ian Baruma. Uh, you've also rec written recently about Australia's decision uh, that American submarines would be more suitable than French boats as a defense against China. Why has Great Britain gotten involved in this dispute? Well, I'm afraid that's still part of the, the Churchill complex, that having, especially after Brexit, um, Britain is left pretty much sort of 
floating out there on its own. Um, as, a, as one of the major European powers in the EU, it, it had real clout. It has much less outside the EU. The EU is, is a far more powerful block than, than Britain could ever be. Didn't people so, predict that that was going to happen? Well, it's people who are against bra- Brexit, absolutely. But the, the people who are in favor of Brexit um, uh, argued that no, now Britain would be unleashed and um, um, uh, free from the interference of Brussels. It would become a global player again and so on and so forth. And when Britain, post-war Britain, uh, when, when British politicians talk about being a global player, they almost invariably mean as the sidekick of the United States. And so this move of uh, joining the United States and Australia and East Asia, where Britain really has very few interests, uh, is, is absolutely part of that same pattern. Well, can't this complicated history be traced all the way back to two days before the Normandy landings in June 1944, when Charles de Gaulle demanded the right to govern France after it was liberated? But uh, since FDR detest- detested de Gaulle, uh, he had no intention of, of agreeing to that, and and uh, and and Churchill wound up siding with with Roosevelt. Yes, I mean the, the, Roosevelt was probably right, not just because he he detested the girl as a blowhard, but because it's, it's always a huge problem after the fall of a dictatorship or a foreign occupation. Who has the legitimacy to then uh, govern the country? And de Gaulle took it for granted that he had the legitimacy to do so. And uh, Roosevelt was not prepared to um, to give him that. But uh, you're quite right. Churchill, who had much more time for de Gaulle than Roosevelt did, Churchill himself being a bit of a blowhard with pretensions of, of, and, and grandiosity, rather admired de Gaulle's um, uh, effort to stand up for the grandeur of France, even when he only had a few hundred people behind. But um, but Churchill said not only that if he had to choose between de Gaulle and Roosevelt, he'd always choose de Gaulle uh, and Roosevelt. He also said, if I have to choose, if we have to choose between Europe and the, and the, the wide blue sea, will you, uh, or the wide blue ocean, we'll choose the ocean. So the, the idea of being Britain belongs to the Atlantic to the United States to the English-speaking world and not really to the continent of Europe. Do you see any irony in the fact that uh, after the war, with the creation of the European Union, you would have assumed that France would have taken a leadership position, but it turns out that the defeated country, Germany, has been the, the dominant country in the EU? Well, of the EU, perhaps, but not of the uh, necessarily of the uh, European Economic Community, which was the forerunner of the EU. So in the first decades after the war, uh, the Germans um, were very shy of, um, of, of, of um, pushing their weight around for obvious reasons. Uh, and other Europeans w- w- had no desire for the Germans to, to um, um, dominate them in any form. And so that allowed the French really to dominate uh, the continent of Europe for a long time, with the Germans always sort of shyly uh, huddling behind uh, the French. Now, in the EU, uh, Germany had become such a formidable economic power, and it's a bigger country than any other country in Europe and so on, 
And Angela Merkel has been an extremely effective leader. So de facto, of course, the Germans dominate, but the French and the British are the only countries in Europe that have uh, armed forces of any respectability. The Germans, again, for obvious reasons, will not take any kind of military initiative. And that still puts the French into a fairly powerful position. But now Britain has opted to side with the U.S., this time in, I don't know how you pronounce this, AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, which stands for Australia, United Kingdom, U.S., a new defense pact with Australia that was uh, put together to, to counter China. Yes. Uh, however you pronounce it, it sounds ugly, AUKUS or AUKUS. Uh, or AUKUS. AUKUS. And yeah, but that's the, of course the, that's Biden's strategy is to um, uh, to focus the uh, American foreign policy on uh, the perceived threat of a rising China. Now, China is clearly a problem; you can't deny it. Uh, and the United States, whether to whether it's right to sort of try and um, encourage a, a new kind of Cold War with China is another question. But uh, in doing so, the United States wants allies, and the Europeans um, are rather reluctant, especially the Germans, because they have huge economic interests in China, as do the Japanese. And so there's a real fear uh, amongst the Europeans and also the Japanese, even though the Japanese are even more dependent on the United States than, than the Europeans are as for, the, for their security. So they'd always be very careful not to criticize any American president. But um, they're quite afraid of being squeezed between an assertive United States um, and and China, um, where they they also have great, uh, very important economic interests. (coughs) Excuse me. So there is a a tendency now, not so much in Japan, certainly in Europe, uh, and the French again are the other. Are, are in the forefront of this, of saying it's time that we become less dependent on the United States. We have to start thinking of how we could, as as the, as, a, as Europe or the EU, we have to be able to have a more independent foreign policy and, and take care of our own defense to a larger extent. Now, the problem with that is that the Europeans will never have a serious hmm. uh, military force without full participation of Britain. Was one of the problems that the three AUKUS countries didn't bother to notify the French of the impending deal? Well, that was certainly the main problem. And I think they did it because they knew that the French would make a fuss and that would then make the deal very difficult. Um, But I I think it was clumsy, Um, especially if, uh, as Biden says he wants, um, you want a sort of Western alliance to stick together. Um, against this uh, huge uh, authoritarian power in China. Uh, it's not a smart thing to drive a wedge right, right bet- between or, between the, the different Western allies. And that wedge is, of course, exactly where that's the sore spot where Churchill t- told de Gaulle, um, if we have to choose, we'll choose the Blue Sea and not Europe. That's, th- that's the division. And uh, it's a division that... Make, will make a, a concerted uh, Western effort very difficult or more difficult. Does AUKUS represent a major break from Donald Trump's policies in the region? 
Well, it's so hard to say what Donald Trump's policies would have been <laughs> because he, I'm not sure he thought his own policies through and he was belligerent towards China. And then and friendly to China. Yes, and then he wanted to be Xi Jinping's friend the next. And so uh, it's often assumed that um, Biden, in many respects, is actually quite close to what one assumes would have been Trump's policy. And, and Trump certainly took a harder line on China than uh, Obama did. Well, in defense of the deal... Aren't ang uh, Anglo-American nuclear-powered boats superior to the diesel-powered French submarines? Uh, they may be, but I think what com that's, it's very possible um, that from a, a military hardware point of view, uh, this deal makes sense. The, the problem there is that apparently the French had offered them nuclear-powered submarines at an earlier stage because the French can make them too. And the Australians told the French that they didn't want them, they wanted diesel-powered submarines which is, was another uh, reason for the French to feel very hard done by. So uh, is Australia under any threat? It's, it's not like Taiwan. Uh, it just happens to be, well, not even all that close to China. Well, I don't think they're under threat in the sense that the Chinese are, uh, are likely to, start to invade Australia. I think that they feel... Uh, slightly threatened because the Chinese are not shy in using their economic power and, and, mm -hmm. and possibly military power to browbeat uh, nations in, in its vicinity. And Australia is certainly in its vicinity, more in its vicinity than it is in any other. And so the Chinese have bullied the Australians into uh, doing all kinds of things that they may not have wanted to, and that makes them feel vulnerable. And so an alliance with the United States to keep China in check um, would make a certain amount of sense to um, an Australian government. Some even say that this is a way of strengthening U.S. alliances in the Indo-Pacific region with uh, India, for example. Yes. No, I, I don't think there's anything in, intrinsically wrong with the U U.S. Um, having strong alliances with Japan and India and Southeast Asia uh, to make sure that China doesn't start to bully other countries uh, too much. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but th 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 there is something wrong with um, in this demonstrative way, picking Britain over France, because France arguably has more interests in uh, the Indo-Pacific region than Britain does, um, have been serious about uh, China and, and, and East Asia. And alienating one ally at the expense of another is never a very good thing to do. I noticed that France recalled its ambassadors from Canberra and, and Washington, but not from London. They, they don't consider Britain important enough in all I think of this? Snub, yeah, it was a deliberate snub. That they, they quite rightly, they saw this as basically an American operation which involved Australia because of the submarines and then the British latched, latched onto it. But we're not the main players here. And so uh, I think that was, yes, it was not, not withdrawing the ambassador was a form of, of snub. Didn't, uh, I don't know if it's Josep or Josep, Burrell, 
the EU's High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy announced that Europe would help to limit China's power, that uh, the bloc would seek a trade deal with Taiwan while still engaging with China. Uh, and and even the pro-European left-leaning newspaper Le Monde called this deficient in backbone. Yes. Well, the, the problem, of course, is that the EU doesn't really have a backbone in the sense that um, they can say what they like. And it's an in, in, enormously powerful block, so an economic block. So in trade negotiations and so on, when the EU negotiates with China or anybody else, the United States, uh, they have real clout. An, an individual European country, including Britain, has much less. But in terms of security and, uh, and a geopolitical strategy, the EU um, is relatively impotent because in order for the EU to have a backbone, they'd need a common military that, that means something. They'd need a common foreign policy uh, that can be enforced and so on. And they don't. Uh, it's still, it's not a nation. It's not even, a, it's not a United States. Uh, it's something else. And uh, we can talk until the cows come home about exactly what it is. Well, we can't talk at, at all about it because we've <laughs> run out of time. But thank you so much. You Always a great guest, Ian Baruma. Thank you. And that pretty much brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access all of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our past shows on LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. You've probably heard that WBAI continues to experience major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, and that's why we are asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to please go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 right now to become a member. That's 212-209-2950. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books, documentaries, or just a topic that you hadn't thought about this deeply before? Do it for us. Do it for WBAI. Do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And one very helpful way to contribute is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. But however you donate, the important thing is that you take that first step and make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Um, I hope you can join us again tomorrow when the Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge, Diane Coyle, will discuss her new book, Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be. You won't want to miss it. We'll see you then.